Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Hey friends, welcome to our second episode on spiritual warfare. So in our last episode, we started our discussion by introducing the three phases of the spiritual life, as the great saints have described them, the purgative phase, the illuminative phase, and the unitive phase. And then we talked a bit about the purgative phase, which is the first stage of the spiritual life and the kinds of spiritual battles that we often face in that stage. So we left off on a little bit of a cliffhanger in the kind of transitional space between the purgative stage and the illuminative stage. And today we're going to pick up our conversation from there. We're going to talk about the illuminative and the unitive stages of the spiritual life and the kinds of battles that we tend to face in those stages. Now, one thing that I want to flag at the outset, and I kind of hinted at it in the last episode, but just to reiterate, the devil doesn't have some kind of like cardboard cutout strategy that he uses for everyone as like a, a blanket approach in spiritual warfare. He basically uses whatever tactics he thinks will work on an individual person at any given time. So if you hear things as we go along and you think, well, hang on, I've experienced that before and that's from the illuminative stage. And then I've also experienced that and that's from the purgative stage. So like, where am I on the spectrum? Okay, <laughs> remember, everyone's spiritual journey looks different. The point of these episodes, it's not like a spiritual personality test where we're trying to place ourselves exactly on a specific point in a prescribed journey. The point is more that we're, we're just trying to be aware of the kinds of temptations and also consolations that we might experience as we progress in the spiritual life. And we can experience things at different times because we're all unique human beings. So to recap, the purgative phase is the phase where we're being purified of our attachments to earthly things and also to sin, particularly to mortal sin. The illuminative phase is the phase where we're much more detached from those things and we start to make real progress in our relationship with God. We're being detached even from venial sin and we're experiencing real growth in virtue and our prayer life and our love of God. So we can think of the difference between the purgative phase and the illuminative phase like this. Imagine that you were going on like a seven day hike up a mountain and you were not very experienced at hiking. So you packed way too much stuff to take on this hike. You had like five extra pairs of shoes and like a massive Bluetooth speaker and a nice dress just in case there were any parties along the way. You're like Mrs. Potato Head. I packed your angry eyes just in case. <laughs> or like the hobbits with all their extra pots and pans and nice crispy bacon. And of course, once you start to climb that mountain, you immediately realize that you have packed too much stuff because your bags are way too heavy. And you realize that you're going to have to start leaving some things behind or you're not going to be able to complete this climb. So that's what you do. On day one, you have to abandon the Bluetooth speaker. And on day two, you give your dress away to a nice friendly bear. And eventually you get to the point where you've shed so much of that unnecessary stuff that you actually start to feel lighter and you can start to move faster and you can actually make proper progress up that mountain. So this is kind of like moving from the purgative phase to the illuminative phase. In the purgative, we're still working our way up the mountain, but it's much slower because we're weighed down by sin. And as we start to shed our attachment to sin, we become lighter and stronger and we make more meaningful progress towards heaven. 
So the illuminative stage is marked by a few things. A deeper and more mature love for God and for our neighbor. Deeper contemplative prayer. Greater detachment from earthly things, as well as greater detachment from consolations from God. And that doesn't mean we don't experience consolation. It just means we're not reliant on it committing fewer and fewer venial sins, trying to avoid imperfections that aren't even sins, and most of all, a dramatic increase in the presence of God in our souls, which leads to a deep joy and peace. So just as our spiritual journey kind of changes at this stage, so too the tactics of the devil change. Because if we think about it, we're no longer carrying as much baggage with us, so the devil has less to kind of grab onto and pull us backwards with. So instead of trying to like grab on and pull us back, he kind of like tries to get in front of us and stop us from progressing or to kind of misdirect us, right? To kind of lead us off the path and and get us pointing in a different direction. So How does the devil try to do all of these things? What does it look like? Well, one of the ways the devil tries to misdirect us is through distraction. Spoiler alert, guys, throughout the entire spiritual journey, from beginning to end, one of the devil's key tactics is to try to distract us, particularly in our prayer. It's something that even the great saints struggle with. And I guess that's just because it's like, it's kind of like a low hanging fruit for the devil. It's an easy way to discourage us because we all get distracted so easily. Now, in the illuminative phase, we are actually, in general, much less distracted than we were in the purgative phase. According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, the key virtue of the illuminative phase is something called recollection. Recollection is defined as attention to the presence of God in the soul and withdrawal of the mind from external and earthly affairs. Now, this withdrawal doesn't mean that we become like annoyingly absent-minded or self-focused or we don't care about our family and friends anymore. What it means is that our thoughts are rooted first and foremost in God. Our hearts and minds are like a, a sanctuary where we can be alone with him. And from that place of quiet, we can then go and love the world and be in the world without being distracted by the world or absorbed in more superficial sort of human concerns. And due to that inner recollection, our external behaviors will also start to change. We become externally recollected. So maybe we get better at listening to other people. Maybe we're better at sitting in silence or just doing one thing at a time. However, even after we have achieved that state of recollection, We remain human beings and we will find, especially in our prayer, that our mind still wanders and the devil will take full advantage of that and try to discourage us and tell us that we're basically back at square one and we should just give up. And the solution to that temptation is humility. Just like little children, when we notice that we're distracted, we just need to get back on task without getting all complicated and tied up in knots about it or getting in distraction loops. St. Teresa of Avila writes, and I find this very reassuring, she says, It is very important that no one be distressed or afflicted over dryness or noisy and distracting thoughts. One of the other ways that the devil might try to discourage us at this point is through the experience of loneliness. So at this stage of the spiritual journey, a person is moving away from the kind of superficial cares of the world and their hearts are more anchored in heaven. And that's a place where not everyone is going to follow. So a person might start to notice that the conversations and pursuits and concerns of the people around them 
just don't really interest them anymore. Or maybe some of their friends or family members start to kind of like back away slowly from them. They're like, okay, you've gotten too holy for me. Now, this isn't to say that holy people are socially weird and they drive people away. Okay. If people start backing away slowly from you because you've started wearing like 25 pairs of rosary beads around your neck, that's not because you're holy. That's because you're being weird. Don't be weird. (laughs) But it is true that the closer that we get to God, unfortunately, the fewer people are going to travel with us. And that can be a lonely experience. And of course, the devil presses in on that wound and tries to tempt us to seek earthly consolation. The good news is that at this point, we are much more detached from earthly consolation. So this experience of loneliness, if we remain humble and we stay faithful to prayer, mortification and the sacraments, that loneliness can lead to a greater reliance on God and a deeper connection with him. One of the more tricksy ways that the devil tries to tempt us at this stage is through trying to get us to do good things that aren't God's will. Things that are good, but are not the will of God. This makes so much sense, right? Because at this stage of the spiritual journey, we're way more focused on doing good and we want to do the right thing. So the devil takes advantage of that. He's like, oh, hey, you want to do something good? Why don't you sign up to be a missionary in Japan instead of staying home and looking after the wife and five kids that you already have? Well, like say that you're a uni student and you're studying medicine and you're coming up to your final year and you're going to have some really intense exams. And then someone approaches you and asks, you if you would like to be the president of the Catholic Society. Now, objectively speaking, it is a good thing to be the president of the Catholic Society. And you might think, well, if it's good, then God must want me to do it. And then you might accept and then find that you simply do not have time to do both things. And you end up being unable to glorify God in either area of your life because you're stretched too thin. Now, there are a number of reasons why we might fall into this kind of trap of doing good things that are not the will of God. One of the reasons why we might fall into this is because we don't have enough trust in him. We're anxious. We're thinking, okay, I don't trust that God has a plan for my life, that I just need to put one foot in front of the other and do the thing that's right in front of me right now that God's asking me to do. We stop listening to God. We stop asking him what his plan is. And we anxiously start looking around for just all of the good things and thinking, okay, I'm going to do that. or I'm going to try that. or I'm going to say yes to that because I need to do good things. I need to get to heaven. And we're not trusting God. And maybe we're also falling into the mindset of thinking, okay, I need to earn my path to heaven myself rather than I need to just stand here and receive the graces that God gives me and listen to what his plan for my life is rather than what my plan for my life is. Apparently, when I was a toddler, I was like the most infuriating child to go on a walk with because every time we went for a walk, I just wanted to stop and pick literally every single flower that I walked past. And my mom was like, Caitlin, you physically cannot pick every single flower in the world. Also, we will never get there if you just keep wandering off to pick all the flowers. (laughs) And the same goes for us in our spiritual lives. We can't pick every single flower. And maybe maybe that's a flower that God has put there for someone else to pick. And if we pick it, then we're depriving that person of something good that God had planned for them. So one solution to this temptation to be distracted by good things is to ask for more faith and humility, to allow ourselves to be led by God and not by ourselves. Another solution is to bring these things to spiritual direction. If we're tossing up, should I do this good thing or not? Talk it over with someone who is well-formed and who's also on that path to holiness, who can help to give us an outside perspective. 
Another way that the devil can tempt us is through complacency and a false sense of peace. So we might start to think at this point, like, oh, you know, I've come pretty far. Like I've done a lot. I've been through a lot and I think I've earned a bit of a break. And of course here, we're not talking about like a physical break, like a rest. Rest is incredibly important and we should always find time for it. What we're talking about here is a kind of spiritual break, like easing off on our efforts to grow holy because we've become complacent. And we might start to even like compare ourselves to the people around us and think, oh, well, you know, I'm doing way better than that person. So maybe I don't need to worry about trying to be holy so much. And here we have to remember that there is no such thing as standing still in the spiritual life. You are either going forward or you're going backward. And the devil never takes a holiday. My mum used to say it to me all the time as a kid, Caitlin, the devil never takes a holiday. (laughs) He will take advantage of our complacency. And if we stop moving, then the devil will get in there and bit by bit, he'll start to chip away at our holiness until he's made a great big hole in it. He'll sure shank us. (laughs) Now, the best way to protect ourselves against complacency is by remaining vigilant, keeping an eye on the little things, catching the little foxes, right? Without getting scrupulous and like weird about it, taking little things seriously. Because once we start to relax in those little things, it's like if we're playing a game of chess and then we let all of our pawns get taken because we're like, well, well, it's only a pawn, doesn't matter. And then all of a sudden, all of our main pieces are unprotected and then we've lost the game. There's a great quote from St. Jose Maria Escriva where he says, carry on the war the daily struggles of your interior far from the main walls of your fortress. And the enemy meets you there in the small mortifications, your customary prayer, your methodical work, your plan of life. And with difficulty will he come close to the easily scaled battlements of your castle. And if he does come, he comes exhausted. So in other words, the best way to avoid those big battles at like the walls of the castle is to fight the little battles that are far away from those walls. Another temptation that we might experience at this stage is a temptation to a false sense of virtue. So as we progress closer and closer to God, we start to really grow in our love for God. And we might sense that we're growing in that love. And sometimes that feeling of loving God can be so strong because it is real that we can be lured into the temptation of thinking that we've been perfected in our love for God, that we couldn't possibly love him anymore. And while it's true that, yes, we have come a really long way in holiness and in our closeness with God, we're not quite perfected yet, but we can start to kind of miss those little areas where we still need to grow in virtue. So St. Teresa of Avila suggests an antidote to this. She says, if you think that you love God perfectly, check how you love your neighbor. (laughs) Look at how you treat the people around you. If you find that even just in little ways, you're still a bit impatient with other people or critical of them or harsh with them, then that's a good sign that you haven't yet been perfected in your love for God, that there are still virtues that you need to grow in. Another way that we can guard ourselves against this false sense of virtue or false sense of perfection is by surrounding ourselves with people who know us and who are also on the same journey as us and who can hold us accountable and correct us if we go wrong. There's this quote from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar where Cassius says, the eye sees not itself, but by reflection, by some other thing. 
I love that quote because it is so like evocative. The idea of an eye trying to see itself, like it's actually impossible unless it's looking in a mirror. And the same can be true of us. We might have vices that we simply cannot see in ourselves and we need someone else to point that thing out to us. So we should ask the people that we love and that we trust to let us know if they see us failing in some virtue. Now, you might remember in our last episode, we talked about how during the purgative phase, the soul has experiences that purge it of its attachment to consolations from God. So we might experience things like spiritual dryness or feeling that we're doing worse when we're actually doing better, feeling unwilling to pray. These are all things that are teaching us to let go of our need for tangible consolation. And St. John of the Cross refers to this stage of detachment as the dark night of the senses. So we're learning to rely less on our senses, our tangible human sense of consolation and more on God. Now, as the person moves towards the end of the illuminative phase, so they've been purified of that sensible attachment and they're being purified even from their attachment to venial sin. They're practicing all the virtues. They're not relying on consolations and they're moving towards that unitive stage. They experience something that is both more full on, more difficult, and also more rewarding than that dark night of the senses. It's called the dark night of the soul. Now, in the dark night of the soul, it's not just our senses that are being purified, but it's also our will and our intellect. It's like the deepest, innermost part of ourselves. So what happens in the dark night of the soul? What does that look like? Well, there's a really good description of it by Father Thomas Dubay in a book called Fire Within. He says that during the dark night of the soul, the person is further divested of merely human memory, imagination, intellect, and will. Cozy feelings at prayer are gone. One feels left high and dry, suspended between heaven and earth. The person feels spiritually unclean and wretched. There is an impression of being rejected and abandoned by God. It appears that the person will never be worthy again and that the lofty blessings already received will never return. Individuals in this second night love God greatly and they know that they do, but they find no relief in their knowledge. Rather, it causes still deeper suffering because in loving God so much, they cannot be persuaded that God loves them. Prayer seems impossible and reassurances from the spiritual director are of little avail. So it's a lot, basically. (laughs) It's like a period of spiritual desolation or depression. It's much more painful than just the purification of the senses. Both St. John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila compare this experience of spiritual desolation to purgatory. It's incredibly painful. And of course, God still allows moments of reprieve and consolation when the soul needs them. But we might still experience these extended periods of deep spiritual darkness and depression. And of course, the devil tries to take advantage of this to discourage us and encourage us to seek worldly consolation. However, because the person is much more advanced in their spiritual life at this stage, they're much more likely to remain faithful and they're less likely to cave to that temptation. Weirdly, at this point, it's kind of like the way that the souls in purgatory have been described. Saints who have been through the dark night of the soul talk about how they actually kind of don't want to be anywhere else. Even though they're completely miserable, they wouldn't want to be anywhere else because they know that this experience is drawing them towards God. 
St. John of the Cross wrote a poem about the dark night of the soul. It's really beautiful. And in it, he says, O guiding night, O night more lovely than the dawn, O night that has united the lover with his beloved. So while it's a painful experience, it's also a beautiful one that unites the person more closely to God. There's another great quote from that poem where St. John of the Cross says, I continued in oblivion lost. My head was resting on my love. I absolutely love that image of the person's head resting on God. And this is the solution, right? This is the best approach is to rest on God. Even when we feel like God has abandoned us to just keep our head resting on him. And once that person has moved through the dark night of the soul, they find themselves in the unitive phase, which is the final phase of the spiritual journey. This phase has been defined by the Catholic Encyclopedia as a state where the person's mind is so drawn away from all the temporal things that they enjoy great peace. They are neither agitated by various desires nor moved to any great extent by passion. They have their minds chiefly fixed on God and their attention turned either always or very frequently to him. It is the union with God by love and the actual experience and exercise of that love. So it's basically as close as we can get to heaven on this earth where the soul is totally united with God. So in this state, the person experiences something called relative perfection. So it's not absolute perfection, okay? That is something that we will only experience in heaven when we're actually experiencing the beatific vision. So on earth, we still experience suffering. We still have our fallen human passions and temptations, even if we're not acting on them. And we're still susceptible to venial sin, even if we've been purified from habitual sin. So relative perfection means that the person is way less at the mercy of the devil, but they're still not completely safe. The devil doesn't give up on us until we literally die, no matter how holy we get. Now, one of the main things that the devil does at this point is that he tries to draw the person away from their goal by imitating God and imitating the effects of holiness, because he knows that at this stage, the person is so united with God that they're just not going to look anywhere else. So the devil tries to impersonate God. So one thing that a person might experience during the unitive phase is something called locutions. So a locution is like when you hear God saying something to you in your heart. So one example of a locution, you might have heard this story before. It's quite famous. St. Teresa of Avila was traveling somewhere. And I think she was just having like a really bad day as it was. And then she fell either off her horse or off out of a carriage and landed in the mud. And she was so upset and she looked up at heaven and she's like, God, why are you doing this to me? And then she heard God say in her heart, this is how I treat my friends. And she responded, well, if this is how you treat your friends and it's no wonder you don't have many. <laughs> so this example illustrates what a locution is. And it's helpful because it helps us to distinguish between locutions and other ways that God speaks to us in our prayer. Sometimes God can speak to us in very subtle ways, like through like a, a quiet, gentle suggestion or maybe a memory or a song or an idea pops into our heads or something kind of slowly, gradually builds over time. So God can speak to us in all those different ways in our prayer. But a locution is like when you clearly hear the voice of God in your heart telling you something. And we can receive locutions earlier in our spiritual journey as well, but they're much more common in the later stages of the spiritual journey. And one thing the devil might do is he might 
give the person false locutions. He tries to tell the person to do things that don't conform to God's will, pretending to be God. So one way to know whether or not something is coming from God or from the devil is, again, to bring it to spiritual direction, to talk about it with someone who is holy and who can give you an outside perspective. There are also a few key questions that we can ask if we hear something and we're like, is that from God or is that from the devil? First question, does this locution conform to the scriptures and church teaching or does it contradict it? Secondly, does this locution immediately draw me towards God and give me deep peace or does it unsettle me and is it distracting me from God? Thirdly, is this locution clear and lasting? Locutions that come from God often arrest us. It's like God has grabbed us by the shoulders and been like, right, okay, listen up. And over time, that thing that we hear in our souls, it stays with us and it even grows in intensity. In contrast, something that doesn't come from God will often sound kind of like vague and half-formed and it might disappear from our heads pretty quickly. Question four, has this locution come to me kind of out of the blue? Is it something that I wouldn't have thought of myself? Or is it something that has arisen out of the train of thought that I was already on as though I was sort of forcing it or constructing it myself? Fifth, does this locution have a deep and layered meaning? Or is it something fairly superficial that might just be a distraction? And finally, does this locution lead me to humility Or does it lead me to pride? Now, on that note, one thing to remember is that if a person remains humble before God, God will protect them. Okay, when we think we've received a locution and we're not sure and we're trying to figure it out, we need to be vigilant and we need to think critically about it, but we shouldn't get afraid or overly scrupulous. The main thing is to bring it to God, be humble and just let him guide us. Now, throughout the unitive phase, we see this pattern repeated where the devil tries to imitate the favors that the person is experiencing from God to draw them away from him. So a person in the unitive stage might experience spiritual ecstasies and raptures where they're so immersed in God in their prayer that their external senses kind of switch off and then the people around them can't rouse them or get their attention. They might experience the gift of tears where they're just weeping constantly. They might experience a contemplative prayer where they can just sit with God and look at him and not have to say anything. They might even experience things like visions. And the devil, again, can try to distract or draw the person away by mimicking those experiences or by trying to stir up that person's pride, trying to convince them that these experiences are coming from themselves and not from God, trying to get them to be like self-satisfied about them. Now, there are two antidotes to this temptation to pride. One is kind of more passive on our part, and it's that God himself might withdraw the tangible sense of his presence and allow that person to experience a kind of spiritual desolation to help them to remember that these things are not coming from themselves and to help them to rely more on God. The second antidote is more active on our part, and that is, again, exercising humility. Humility will help us to know whether or not something is coming from God because we won't be blinded by our own pride, by our own kind of attachment to the idea of ourselves as holy or attachment to those experiences. We'll just be completely humble and childlike before God, listening to him, looking at him and ready to receive whatever grace he sends us. It will also help to preserve us from that experience of self-satisfaction. Isn't it crazy how many times we've talked about humility in this episode? In fact, 
If we think back, we actually started this whole spiritual journey with the need for humility in the purgative phase, and we're ending with the need for humility in the unitive phase. Apparently, someone once asked St. Francis de Sales what the key to holiness is, and he responded, humility, humility, (laughs) and humility. (laughs) If a soul can remain humble, then ultimately the devil can't do anything. St. Teresa of Avila says that the devil can do little or no harm if the soul is humble. So... Those are the three phases of the spiritual life, and there's some of the battles that we might face along the way. Now, there's a lot more that we can say about spiritual warfare, but just one final thing, one kind of general comment about spiritual warfare that might be helpful for us. I was listening to this talk from Archbishop Fulton Sheen about the devil and spiritual warfare, and one of the points he makes is that the word diabolical The Greek root, (laughs) the origin of that word is Greek. (laughs) Um, The Greek root of that word means to tear apart, to rip things apart. And that essentially is what the devil does, right? He tears things apart. And if we look at the different temptations that we've talked about across these two episodes, So often, this is what we see the devil trying to do. He's trying to rip things apart, to create disunity, even just within ourselves, right? To get us to do things that mean that we are kind of at odds with ourselves and we can't settle. Or to get us to be critical of other people, to get us to be angry with them and distant from them. And of course, the devil also tries to create disunity between ourselves and God. So across all stages of the spiritual life, this is one really useful thing that we can just keep an eye out for. Keep an eye out for situations where things are being ripped apart, where there is no unity within ourselves, within our relationships, within our communities, within our church, within the world more generally. Whenever we see disunity, that's a sign that somewhere in there, the devil is at work. A clear sign that something is coming from God is unity. And of course, by that, we don't mean that we all agree with each other and it's all kumbaya and we're holding hands and no one's ever wrong and we're all just blindly defending each other, even when we're in the wrong for the sake of unity. And of course not. What we mean by unity is charity, that we love one another unconditionally, that we pray for one another and we try to stay close to one another, even when we disagree. Now, one other thing, there is actually a section in the diary of St. Faustina about spiritual warfare. It's quite short, but it is incredibly useful. Um, And we don't have time to go through it here, but I'm going to include a link to the diary of St. Faustina in the show notes. And I'm also going to record a bonus episode where we'll go through each of those points from that section and sort of talk through them together. So that will be available on Patreon for patrons. Now, before we wrap up, because humility has been such an important part of both of these episodes, I want to recommend a prayer that we can all pray, and that is the Litany of Humility. The Litany of Humility is one of my favorite prayers. It is an incredibly helpful tool for spiritual warfare. So I'm going to include that prayer in the show notes, and I want to invite you to pray it and maybe even make a habit of praying it. So that's all we have time for today. In our next episode, we're going to do one of our episodes on the lives of the saints. We're going to talk about a saint who was also a drug addict. His name is Saint Mark G. Chenchang, and he was a legend. I can't wait. Have a fantastic fortnight. I'll talk to you later. Bye.